Faisal, within Islamic finance, money in and of itself cannot be used to generate profit. That is, those involved in Islamic banking cannot lend or borrow money primarily for purposes of earning interest. While the objective of Islamic finance is not profit maximization, but rather to facilitate Sharia-compliant trading, leasing and fee-based transactions and investment activities, what are some of the main principles behind Islamic finance and what are some main challenges? Well, Islamic finance, as the name denotes, is a faith-based concept, proposition, whatever you like to call it. And actually, the Islamic faith is seen by Muslims as a continuation of the Abrahamic faith of Christianity and Judaism. And in the Christian world and in the uh, Jewish traditions, there is mention of usury. In Arabic, the word used in the Quran and Islamic teachings is riba. And essentially, this refers to the utilization of money, like you said, in its own self to generate a return for those with money. So in simple terms, it's about giving someone some money, a hundred pounds, let's say, and asking for a return on that money in the form of interest. And that is what is prohibited and is at the center of Islamic finance. Money in Islamic finance should be used as a store of value and medium of exchange to facilitate trade and business, but not be used as a means of making money without an underlying trade or some kind of real economic activity supporting that exchange of value. And so that is something, again, very similar to, like I mentioned, with the Christian tradition regarding usury, although modern theologians of Christianity would regard usury as some sort of exploitative rate of interest as opposed to interest per se. So that is a key principle in Islamic finance is. And to understand the reasons of why that is prohibited and some of the wisdoms behind that, many different reasons have been put forward. I mean, some of the main ones around the fact that it encourages this culture of debt where money is being given through the banking system to people without necessarily being related to any formal economic activity. And what this has led to is spiraling debt levels across the world, both at a governmental level and a corporate level, even as a personal level. If you were to look at a graph of how debt has increased around the world and the consequences of that debt, it's been quite staggering. Uh, Another reason often given is that because debt or money is given to those people who have collateral and necessarily those people are wealthy, uh, then it often promotes a a rich-get-richer type of world where the people with access to money are those who have collateral and essentially are able to get more finance and make more money on the back of it. Whereas what the Islamic system is essentially all about is finance or people with money should be intrinsically their return should be related to them investing in some sort of project or asset which then derives a return as opposed to then giving us money on based on interest which therefore means that money should follow the best projects in the world or the best assets in the world as opposed to just giving money to the rich so there are a number of reasons but essentially at the core of islamic finance is this use of money and how money should be used and viewed and out of that come many different implications namely that essentially 
what Muslims are encouraged to do is to invest in things which will, like I said, be some kind of real economic activity, whether it's a business asset or a running business or whether it's buying some asset which then can be used to derive a return or something of that nature. So that's why often Islamic finance is often referred to as uh, supporting asset-based or asset-backed activities or it's often referred to as very much in terms of sharing profit and loss when you're investing money with the people you're investing with. So that's the essence, I think, of what mm -hmm. Islamic finance is. Thank you. A broad overview here. In recent years, Islamic finance has certainly attracted the number of Western multinational financial institutions which have started offering Islamic financial products. And Islamic finance represents a small but, but growing segment of the global finance industry. It's estimated to be between mm. 1 to 2 percent of global mm. financial assets worldwide. But 2018, it's estimated that Islamic banking assets could reach up to $3.4 trillion U.S. Mm. What are some of the main drivers of growth here? It's a very good question. As of today, official numbers and research would point to something like 24-25% of the world's population being Muslim. Now, when you break that down in terms of where these numbers are and where these people are, it is often in the very poorest parts of the world that large swathes of the Muslim population in the world are based, uh, be it Asia or Africa in particular. However, because the magnitude is very big, oh, you know, it's one in four people in the world who are denominated as Muslim, then effectively it is essentially a potentially a very big market. And within that market, there has been pockets of growing affluence, especially in the Middle East and also in some parts of Asia. And as a result, I think there's been the demand-led story often here in terms of more people wanting Sharia-compliant products. Some of the roots of when the first Islamic banks in the modern era came to being were in the sort of 70s, where coincided with the petrodollar boom in the Middle East, and there was a lot more wealth as a result of that. And people who had family offices and the like, who had been managing large amounts of wealth previously, those type of situations arose. And there was a demand from these families and wealthy people with their bankers to say, can we structure the products that we are investing in in a Sharia compliant way? Because to give a little bit more context to why this is so important is the Islamic faith within its primary scripture, which is the Holy Quran, it does talk about this prohibition of riba, as I said, interest in quite strong terms. And so therefore, a practicing Muslim it would take this reasonably seriously and try their best to avoid that. So I think one of the major drivers has been this growing affluence in the Muslim community, Muslim world, and the sheer number of this population around the world and growing demographic. And actually, as we are going through the recent decades, this demographic is not only growing, but it's actually more educated and it's more affluent. And essentially, the younger generations coming who are a little bit more aware of the, their faith and want to live. And there's a massive story around the halal economy and how it's growing and how the millennials and the younger generations are more aware of their faith. They want to be successful and be part of contemporary society and partake in all the activities of contemporary society, but at the same time, to have their sensitivities to do with their faith. And they are demanding also more Sharia-compliant products. So 
I think it's a story of a growing demographic, growing affluence, and basically a demand-led story where there are more products becoming available. But given the nascent nature of this industry, it is a very deep and broad story in terms of what that demand looks like. For example, in the UK, there have been many examples of Sherry-compliant products that have come into the market. Some have succeeded, some haven't succeeded. And what you find is the research shows, you know, consumers still need to be educated. They're still very, maybe skeptical is too strong a word, but they are inquiring as to the authenticity of some of these products, of the service and the competitive nature of these products. They're not just willing to buy these products just because they're sherry compliant. Many of the consumers, they also want a good deal. They want good service. They want a surety that these organizations are credible. So it's an emerging story. I would hesitate to say that it's just a case of a growing demographic, bigger demand, and this industry is trailblazing through stages of success. It's just a success story throughout. As in most industries which are emerging, there's been many, many learnings along the way. And I think Islamic finance is maturing as an industry, as learning the lessons of previous experiences. And it's manifesting itself in different ways, in many ways, from when it started. For example, there's a big movement to bring Islamic industry and ethical industry to some sort of coexistence where there's cooperation. There is because there's so many similarities between the two sectors and they can learn from each other. And many of the, for example, my own firm is called Simply Ethical because we recognize that there is a great similarity between the two sectors. And living in the UK, being a British person, we want it to be more inclusive to all the people that live in the UK. So we wanted a brand and a message that appealed to a much broader audience than just the Muslim audience. So these are some of the things that which are now coming through in the practice and in the way Islamic finance is seen in the public eye. And I think it's also very different in different parts of the world where in Europe, where the Muslim population is a minority, fairly significant, but small minority, the way Islamic finance is positioned, I think, has to be different to the way it's positioned in Muslim-majority countries, like in the Middle East, in places like Malaysia, etc. So it's all signs of a maturing industry, but I think it definitely has a lot more to go in terms of the potential growth. And the secret, I think, lies in producing products which the value proposition makes sense to people. People value ethics, people value the real nature of the fact that it tries to mirror a return to the underlying business or asset and people want good service and a competitive price as well so many different aspects to it but yeah definitely a growing sector and i think has a very good future but also many challenges well thank you very much the ethical aspect i think it's certainly interesting and i think very important particularly in the aftermath of the financial crisis here at the same time there's an interesting report of the islamic financial service industry and it quotes the unevenness of growth between mm. the capital markets which are seem to be growing at a faster rate than islamic banking sector the report attributes to a 25 percent increase in outstanding sukuks to the lower oil prices needed to raise sovereign debt do you mm. think this Part of a wider trend of the increased sukuk popularity, and what are some of the main drivers of this growth beyond the macroeconomic circumstances of oil prices? So I think 
a couple of points in there. Firstly, when people saw that there was an opportunity for Islamic finance through, like I said, demand factors, really, I think one of the sort of first reactions from people, and this is evidence actually in what actually happened, is that a number of Islamic banks started to emerge. Because I think in the modern world, you equate finance with banking, i.e. if you want to provide a proposition to people of a particular type, Apple often think the best way to do that is open a bank. The problem with banking in the way it's structured, carried out, is that banking at the heart of it really is based on debt and interest in the core model of banking. And these are things which are actually anti the Islamic theory because uh, the Islamic view of finance and Islamic finance is effectively anti-interest, anti-debt. It's more to do with equity. It's more to do with investment and profit and loss sharing. So one of the, the subheadings in Islamic finance at the moment, huge debate is, is banking the right vehicle for Islamic finance to flourish? Because it does serve a purpose in terms of looking after people's wealth, in terms of facilitating transactions. But in terms of the investment side, of, in terms of providing business finance or even asset finance, is it the right vehicle because banks and even the way they're governed and regulated are really centered around being debt institutions in the main. So I think that's a subtext to why banking perhaps hasn't grown. But you see other sectors within Islamic finance, be it investment vehicles or funds, like you said, the capital markets and other areas growing more rapidly. I don't have the detail to know exactly if that's the case, but just I thought I'll point it out for the listeners. They'd be quite interested to hear that. Secondly, on the, the cook side, as we know, after the 2008 crisis, obviously a decade on from there, but there has been a shortage of liquidity in certain parts of the world. And the cook is basically another vehicle to tap into some other parts of the world which are more liquid and who are demanding good assets to invest in. So, for example, when the UK launched its sovereign to Cook a few years ago, two, three years back, it was oversubscribed, I believe, by 11 times. It only raised, I think, £200 million, but could have raised a lot more because the appetite for the highly rated the UK Sukuk in the Middle East was so high, in particular in parts of Asia, that people wanted that. So in terms of the appetite for Sukuk, because within Islamic finance, it's often seen in terms of comparing conventional investing to investing in a Sharia-compliant way, it's often seen as slightly more riskier because the predominant kind of theory behind Islamic finance is to share in the profit or loss of the venture or the business you're investing in, which in essence means equity investment. And equity investment is always seen as reasonably risky compared to investing in corporate bonds, for example, or fixed income instruments. Now, the Kulk basically is the fixed income alternative, Islamic alternative that you have in the Sharia compliant universe of investing. So Islamic investors often, especially in the Middle East, etc., they have been surrounded with a lot of uncertainty in terms of the political turmoil that they've been facing. They've had liquid cash. They've also been, I wouldn't say victims, but they've suffered losses of various other natures in places like Dubai, etc., when the properties have collapsed in value or been depressed in value. So they often are slightly cautious with their money. I think that's something that people acknowledge. And there has been 
an appetite from the Islamic banking sector and others to invest in more fixed income type instruments. And the Cooks fulfilled that role. I mean, we talked earlier at the beginning of the podcast where you mentioned how do the Cooks work. I'm not sure if the listeners are aware, but the Cooks, in very brief terms, is a word which is often translated as Islamic bonds because of the similarities it has with conventional bonds. But it is quite different. Essentially, in another slightly technical speak, it's securitizing an asset of some kind. It's taking, for example, the way the UK sovereign Sukuk worked is that it took three buildings that the government owned in central London, in Whitehall, which had a combined value of 200 million. And what the government did essentially is sold beneficial rights in those buildings to people, unitized or securitized on that asset in chunks to the various investors. And they essentially held a certificate of ownership or part ownership in those buildings. It was essentially a sale and leaseback transaction where the government sold the beneficial rights in the building and then at the same time leased the buildings back and said over the next five years, we will basically lease these buildings because we need them for government business. We will pay these Sukuk holders, these investors, a rate of 2.04%, I believe, per annum. And in the five years, we will buy these buildings back at the value they're valued at today. And that was the deal. So essentially, what a Sukuk essentially usually does is that it takes an asset, an underlying asset, sells the rights in the asset in return the ownership of the asset is now with the investors they have the right to the revenues emanating from the asset and then there's usually a mechanism to buy back the asset now you have to be slightly careful that's not how every sukuk is structured and different sukuks depending on the underlying transaction the one i've described is a very familiar and common type of transaction where the underlying transaction essentially is a lease but there are sukuks which can be structured in a profit-sharing manner, in another manner. So there are various types of Sukuk, but essentially the essence of a Sukuk is what I've just described. Thank you. That certainly is very helpful. And then sort of relating to some of your points that you made at the start, you talked about the importance of assets. And given exactly the topic of Sukuks, apparently one issue that's cited about Sukuks is they are based on assets and therefore, in a way, it limits the amount of assets which can be issued to back yeah. them up. So to what extent does this limit the Sukuk issuance if we talk about the quality and the good types of assets available? I'm not an expert on Sukuk, so I wouldn't be able to give you I would say, a thorough and comprehensive answer on that. But I think essentially what the Sukuk mechanism does, it essentially goes back to the root of what we discussed. It makes the person raising the money, the entity raising the money, relate it back to an underlying real economic business or trade or an asset. And essentially, the quality of the asset and the quality of the proposition to an investor will be based on what the underlying real asset or trade is. And therefore, I think the quality of the Sukuks being issued and how successful they are in the market will be determined by how good the underlying proposition is. So, for example, going back to the UK sovereign Sukuk issuance, people viewed it as a very safe proposition and something that they could really put a high level of confidence on because it was a UK government using UK government assets. I think there are sovereigns looking to issue potential Sukuks around the world or corporates doing that. I don't think there's a shortage of 
good quality assets. Remember one thing, the cooks doesn't mean it has to be, just like the UK sovereigns of cook poison, doesn't mean that these assets have to be in the ownership of Muslim countries or Muslim owners. It's a mechanism can be used by anyone, whether they're Muslim or not, the investors can be Muslim or not. And so therefore, if you think about the pool of good quality assets which are available throughout the world, I don't think there's a shortage, especially in the medium term, for Sukkot to flourish. The most important thing is that the proposition is stacked up from an investment perspective and people are, there, there is a shortage of good quality supports. I think there's a huge gap still to be filled because financial institutions and others are looking for these type of assets to invest. I understand. Thank you. Fintech, obviously, it's something that's impacting the financial system as a whole. And there seem to be a number of fintech hubs that have sprouted up in countries where Islamic finance is very prominent. We talked about Malaysia, UAE, Lebanon, Jordan, and so on. To what extent can new technology, so mobility, blockchain, AI, and fintech hubs act as it's either disruptors or would you say they can also open up certain opportunities here? I think it's huge for Islamic finance. It is potentially huge. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a firm out there which is looking to roll out a robo-advisory type of proposition across the world, really, where there is reasonable and significant Muslim populations and make Islamic Sharia-compliant investing accessible throughout the world or large parts of it, which hasn't been the case before because the fintech, the technology, the internet of things, it enabled people to get access, people to have these opportunities to invest at low cost, which they didn't have before. So if you take a snapshot now, there are only very relatively small pockets of the Muslim world who have access to Sharia compliant investing. It's been the forte mainly of the rich and those who can afford advisors and bank with large institutions, etc. So that's an example of one. Another is Islamic insurance, often referred to as takaful, which is, by the way, very similar to mutual insurance. Again, there's been a lack of provision in the market, often because the way insurance business has been done traditionally up to now has been you need huge amount of scale, huge amount of fixed cost involved, etc. Now, with fintech, you essentially can reduce the cost significantly. You can make it more accessible. So again, I think this will have huge benefit to the market. Banking, again, seeing a fintech revolution, and I know of a couple of firms which are looking to launch digital Islamic and ethical digital banks. So I think it has, can have a huge impact in this space. And one thing I alluded to is that whilst the Muslim population in percentage terms is relatively big in the world, Actually, a large percentage of that is below the average affluence levels in the world. And therefore, fintech lowering the cost of provision has a major place here, I think. And also, if you look at the Muslim demographic, it's much younger than the average. So the generations coming up are going to be more tech savvy, are going to be more open to the use of technology for their affairs. And I think it plays in very well to that demographic too. So it's going to be massive for the industry and allow a lot more penetration into the market. Thank you. Perhaps a final question. Are there any opportunities that Islamic finance offers to non-Muslim investors? So I think this is quite an amazing point here. If you were to talk to the main 
retail bank in the UK, which is the only standalone Islamic retail bank in Al-Rayyan. They've done quite a bit in the market over the last 12, 13 years, and they have products which have appealed to many non-Muslim investors, and some of their best-performing products appeal to non-Muslims because they've offered investment products and the like and been on comparison tables, etc. And when people see that they are rated highly on that, and the underlying proposition is good. There are many, many come forward to take up their services. But one myth that must be dispelled is that Islamic finance is not only for Muslims, nor does it have to be provided only by Muslims. It can be provided by non-Muslims and it can be consumed by non-Muslims. And I'm certainly, you know, someone that has lived all their life in the UK, consider myself fully British, and this is where my home is. I'm certainly very passionate about projecting Islamic finance based on its ethical values and the value proposition it has to offer in the market in that context and really to open it up to everyone to say, look, this is the value proposition based on these ethical principles and if you like the look of that, then you're welcome to partake and take up these offers and services. So it definitely, and even the Sukuk take up has been a lot with the non-Muslim investors because when people see the quality of the underlying asset, the quality of the originator of the Sukuk, the rated, etc., and the quality of the return they're going to get, then they've been impressed enough to invest in it. So yeah, definitely, I think the future of Islamic finance is one of the subheadings within the ethical space and should be looked at as something that can be offered to everyone based on ethical principles. And the last thing, it must be distinctive. I've written a book called Mastering Islamic Finance, and one of the things I discuss in there is basically Islamic finance did go through a phase of imitating conventional finance. And one of the criticisms often leveled at Islamic finance is that it's effectively copying conventional finance but trying to just structure the product sometimes superficially, to make it Islamic. And whilst there is a place for that, because if you're a new industry, you tend to copy your big brother or the people who are ahead of you, and you learn from them and you learn from their experience. At the same time, there's no point in just copying conventional finance, providing essentially the same product. And because you don't have the scale as conventional finance, you essentially invariably are a little bit more expensive. There's no point in that because, one thing, it doesn't do any good to the credibility of Islamic finance. But secondly, people see through it and are not willing to pay a premium for that. I think Islamic finance is much better off being very authentic, very careful about making sure that it subscribes in spirit and in law to the principles underlying Islamic finance and to provide a distinctive alternative offering in the market based on those principles. And I think if it does that, the market is big enough and the ethical market is big enough for it to flourish and do really well. Fantastic. Faisal, thank you so much for speaking with us. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 